I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Whether it's robots taking our jobs, algorithms directing our actions, or social media choosing our president, we're fast becoming aware of how our technological and economic advancements are becoming untethered from our individual and collective human interest. This is where we change the script, rewrite the codes, and envision a society built for and by real people. My name is Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing on Team Human today, systems thinker, currency designer, and social hacker, Art Brock. I think one of the things that the internet has made more visible is value doesn't come from corporations. Value comes from people, from community. Art's going to be showing us how currency is less a thing you own than a way you share, a commons through which we can create value together. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. If you believe that, you're on Team Human. We've been up and running on Patreon for two weeks now, and the results have been promising. The subscriptions help us pay the expenses for the show. I'm not taking any of it, nor will I ever. But the bigger asset has been the participation of our subscribers on the Team Human discussion boards we've set up on Slack. We're learning a lot about the extended Team Human community, getting great feedback on what's working best, and fabulous suggestions for guests. So if you've got it in you, please join the 1% of listeners who are directly supporting the show by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support or go to patreon.com slash teamhuman. So I'm sure many of you heard by now that Instagram is instituting a new algorithm to eliminate mean comments from your feed. So this means that you or your 12-year-old daughter who might be posting pictures on Instagram now doesn't have to worry about people saying mean things in the comments thread. And on the surface, 
it kind of sounds like a good thing. If your kid or you are going to put up a picture of yourself or your family, you know, who wants some stranger coming along and saying you're ugly or that's stupid or get out of my face or whatever they say, all those mean, crazy things. Just get rid of them, you know, see no evil. And it is solving, if it works, it is solving a problem that has plagued the internet social spaces since, uh, oh gosh, since AOL got connected to Usenet back in the mid-1990s. I used to write a, I guess I still do sometimes, a column for CNN about technology, and it always got CNN, they got the most comments of any place I would write, but they were so stupid. They were so inane. People would look at maybe the first sentence or the title of the piece and then start writing all these anti-leftist screeds without reading them. Sometimes people would angrily say something that I actually said in the piece. It was just so stupid, so low level. I, I don't even look at them. And on my own blog, I just turned off the comments because who wants to sit and nurse that kind of stuff? It's It, it caters to the troll, really. In in internet comment sections, the, the spoil sport seems to set the rules. And there were lots of efforts to fix this, to, to come up with systems, really, to mitigate this effect. I remember on Slashdot, which was a, uh, it was really for kind of programmers and hackers, people who really understood something about technology. On Slashdot, they used a rating system that had to do with how many people liked comments that you had done before, how helpful they were, and it, it raised you, you know, to two, three, or four stars or level uh, so then you could filter the comments that you see based on how many stars the person had. So you could look at just expert comments or expert and, and intermediate comments, which kind of isn't fair to someone who hasn't earned their, <laughs> earned their stars. It doesn't make the mean comments go away. You just don't really have to see the, the less, less authoritative ones. And I remember Nick Denton, the guy that ran uh, Gawker Media, before all of their uh, their problems later, he came up with a uh, another set of algorithms through which a community could figure out who's making good comments and those comments rise to the top and the people making less helpful ones go down. But really, something like that in Slashdot or or what Nick Denton was doing for for Gawker Media really depend on community. They're kind of circular and they reinforce certain members. They're not really optimized for growth. If you want to get the most likes on your picture, now you don't want a system that is only showing certain things based on someone's prior performance in that space. So the new system, what Instagram is doing, is teaching algorithms to use natural language processing to really parse and determine the intention of the comment, to be able to really know, is that mean-spirited or not? And that's the holy grail of artificial intelligence these days, is to really understand what is the person saying? What do they mean? When market researchers are trying to figure out, is this person 
a fan of our product or not? Do we want to promote this tweet or do we want to repress it? Do we like this person as an influencer or do we not? And they're trying to do it at scale with no human intervention because human beings have to be paid and we don't trust humans. We want it all to be with algorithms. But the algorithms can't really tell if a person's being sarcastic or not. If the algorithm looks at a, at a tweet that says, oh, great. Does it mean, oh, great, or does it mean, oh, great? <laughs> you know, if, if, if Donald Trump says something and someone tweets, right, do they mean right or do they mean right? It's really hard to know. Humans are really good at figuring that out, as good as we can be anyway. I know we all misinterpret a lot of the text messages that we get these days because they are so so short and, and devoid of context, but at least we're pretty good at it. Machines can't do it at all. So what Instagram is really developing, in some sense, under the guise of protecting kids and users from nasty comments, what they're really doing is is developing the holy grail of artificial intelligence. It's a multi-million person algorithm training program that they're developing where all of us who are on Instagram, well, I'm not, but everyone who is on Instagram is now uh, approving or disapproving the activity of this algorithm, training it. So first, Instagram employs a few thousand people to manually teach the algorithm what's a mean comment. So thousands of people are now going through the comments and checking, oh, this one's mean, that one's mean, this one's mean, and the algorithms are watching them do it so that then the algorithms will be able to do it themselves. Then you just use a, some kind of a simpler feedback to see how it's working. You let people check, yay, that was good. That was, you know, I'm happy with my comments now, or my comments still feel a little mean to me, so that the algorithms can be tweaked by millions and millions of users. Once they've done that, they can start using natural language processing everywhere. It can move through the Facebook empire and beyond, having been figured out. We understand sarcasm. We understand uh, meanness. We understand how to make a world look different than it is, which is really the second strange thing about this new effort. It's that if a comment is not shown to you, it doesn't mean the comment wasn't made. The person who made the comment isn't even going to be informed that his comment didn't post because they don't want mean people to try to figure out ways to get around the algorithm. The mean person still sees their comment there, so they don't know whether you're, you're seeing it or not. It's really just a, a phenomenon of out of sight, out of mind. We're going to create a fake, fun world for you to put up your photos and only see the kind things that people have to say about them. So if they're people, whether they're in your life or beyond, and they're saying mean stuff or negative stuff about how you look, you're not going to know. It's funny, I talked to a, a little kid about this, and she said, um, well, that's terrible because you're going to go to school and you won't know who bullied you online. <laughs> it's an interesting one. But what what she's really talking about is the filter bubble, but to the max. So instead of it just being stories that you don't agree with not showing up in your news feed, 
anything contradictory to you won't necessarily show up in your social feeds. Your your world becomes edited to look different than it is, to look less mean. We're not trying to engender less mean behavior from people. We're just creating the illusion of a less mean environment. And people might be doing or saying whatever it is uh, that they were saying before. And I think the real effort here on Instagram and Facebook's part is to get people to move their preferences from private to public. Right now, most kids, they have their Instagram on private. And that's largely because parents want their kids' Instagram settings on private because you don't want all these creeps out there saying mean things or strange things to your kid. Well, if there's an algorithm that's now protecting your kid or any Instagram user from something that's negative or mean, well, then you might as well go public. And I promise you this, to Instagram, a public account is worth a whole, whole lot more than a private account. A public account is one that's out in the sea of influencers and influencees, as opposed to a private one, which is maybe a nice little training pool, but it's worthless to them as far as... uh, uh, as far as marketing is concerned, as far as uh, developing these young influencers who are going to trickle out to the rest of the Instagram universe. And finally, you know, what works for 12-year-old girls ultimately works best for brands and politicians and everybody else who's actually paying to be on Instagram and influencing people. If you create a safe place for little girls to say anything or show anything and no one's going to say anything mean about them, or at least you're not going to see what the mean people have said about them, then it's also a safe place for Coca-Cola and Donald Trump and any other brand and politician that wants to execute propaganda without being called on it. This is a way of telling these brands, look, you can be out there. No one's going to be able to do that awful thing to you again. Your airline, they're not going to be able to complain about sitting on the tarmac (laughs) anymore or that they got, you know, roughhoused or something. Those comments are going to go away. What Instagram is doing is developing an algorithm through which dissent can be excised from the record. You know, resistance isn't futile. It is non-existent. I'm Keo Stark, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Ramesh Srinivasan, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Richard D. Bartlett, and I'm on Team Human. I'm David Sachs, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guest today, Arthur Brock. It was funny. I, I was looking at your uh, uh, email uh, footer, and you said you probably know me as that guy who talks <laughs> about currencies, social intelligence, agile learning, or culture hacking from MetaCurrency, Scepter, Agile Learning Centers, or Emerging Leader Labs, which is a fun little, uh, almost a little uh, psychological exercise. Here's all the little touch points. Now does. Now do I make sense? Oh, right. It was that guy, that metacurrency guy. 
Right. I almost want to go over these subjects in order. Um, so metacurrency, I don't know, for for me, it was a big moment. It was uh, watching you've got a uh, you got a Prezi talk that you used to do. But uh, also the original writings about metacurrency really helped change my understanding of currency from thinking of it as the money in my pocket, you know, to a set of protocols for expressing and exchanging value. Yeah. And I'm wondering, really, how did you get there? How did you get, what, what was the path that helped you think about currency in that meta way? Well, I was running a company, well, and I say, so this, it's, I'm already off to a bad start. When I say I was running a company, um, I started a company that uh, operated basically without a management hierarchy. And uh, so we were trying to actually make a self-governing organization. We had projects had managers, but people didn't have managers. People had coaches that they got to pick. We created different kinds of performance measures. Anyway, so it was like the original, the original autonomous organ, like Valve and Steam and these companies that are they're all self-selecting groups of people, you know, manage themselves. The the, the ultimate radical parallel processing yeah, organization. Except in that point, it wasn't digitally encoded. It was. It's a little bit more like in Spiral, if you know those guys. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and we've had some of them on. Yeah, yeah, we we were hacking ourselves. We were really committed to how to do business together, and we made all of the mistakes about like business. You know, we didn't have a clear product. We didn't have you know, all sorts of different things. It took a lot of floundering, <laughs> but the processes that we created for coordination were extraordinary. We created really wonderful feedback loops, really strong community, just like a lot of transparency, accountability, healthy culture, straight communication. What happened was I read this book by Bernard Leotard back in 2001, The Future of Money. It was right after it came out. And what I saw when I read that book is how money isn't this thing to just take for granted, but it's it's something that we've designed that has all sorts of unintended consequences. It is a strange kind of culture hack on ourselves, right? With artificial scarcity and all that kind of stuff. And I started realizing that what we had done in Dream Team Technologies, which was the name of that company, is we had created other kinds of currencies for creating feedback loops that fostered a totally different culture. It was a totally different kind of hack on ourselves, and I started seeing, I'd been looking for trim tabs. I'd been looking for like the leverage point of where do you produce change and mm-hmm. um, had been involved in education, decided, you know, that's not a, a the starting point. They're a late adopter of, of change. You have to prove your models in the business world. So now we were proving these models in the business world. That was our intention anyway. And what I saw when I read that book was wait a second, there's even a greater leverage point. If you change the incentives that everybody is organizing their businesses and operations and economies and cultures by, if you actually change the currency, all of these businesses will optimize themselves to new incentives. But we've just unconsciously adopted a set of them. And so 
for me, that was where I started really playing with currency as way more than money. It was all kinds of information flow, feedback loops, but formalized systems for large-scale coordination or for coordination in the social level. But how do you incentivize something other than money? I feel like money is the only one that has like points attached. You don't get like love points or sex points or food points. It's like money is the only, you know what I mean? Money is the only metric that has like official numbers on it. Well, that's, (laughs) it's certainly (laughs) dominant in people's imagination. And it's certainly dominant in people's survival strategies and the kind of hamster wheel economy. But it's not, that's not true at all. We pay attention to all kinds of different currencies, you know, a, a college degree. So let me back up. When I use the word currency, I'm trying to reclaim it as something different than money, as more akin to the roots of the word. Think of it as, the, as current, like flow, dash C, like the ability to see currents on the social level and coordinate them. So a college degree makes visible a particular flow of learning that has occurred, you know, and you, and you get the degree by meeting the degree requirements. You need, you know, 15 credits of this and 12 credits of that and 25 credits of the other thing. And and those stacks. So a certain amount of learning has passed from an institution into this person's mind and heart. Right. In a particular domain. Right. But, but these, these stacks of credits tell you how many course hours you've accomplished in which categories, right? That's, but the credits only uh-huh. count if you get a good enough grade. And the grades are a performance metric currency attempting to, how, to measure how well you're learning the content of the course. And these Right. Th- so it's like six credits times 4.0, which is an A, is like t- the equivalent of like 24. Whereas <laughs> if you got a B, it might be the equivalent of an 18. Yeah. And the transcript is your balance sheet of your, you know, anyway. And... These... Right. And the institution you went to, if you go to Podunk versus Harvard, there's also a multiplier effect on there. That's right. But those three non-monetary currencies completely shape the flow of participation of students. It's how we actually make visible something, but then it's also how they navigate what they have to accomplish. Right? So the currency... Right, but there's not that many of those out there. There are. Right? So there's credits, there's military, there's... <laughs> You know, the horsepower of my car. No, no, no. But they all feel... Hold on. Do you remember, (laughs) Douglas, do you remember when food was just food? It wasn't cage-free, organic, fair trade, locally grown, hormone-free... You know, uh, right. I'm looking at the back of my pretzels right now. (laughs) And then there's saturated fat content, trans fat, poly, cholesterol percent of my daily. That's different. That's different. Because all those things that I just said are the the fat content is embodied in the thing itself. But whether or not pesticides were used when producing it isn't necessarily embodied in the thing itself. That's embodied in the in the place where it was produced. Right. And so if I'm right. holding an apple in my hand, I don't know what kind of poisons were sprayed or if if slave labor was used or, you know, that that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, yeah. so these different certifications are literally currencies. They're they're nominal currencies. They're not even not mon- They're not even numerical currencies to make visible certain parts of the process so that I can make better choices that reflect my values. 
So there's literally thousands of these things that we navigate all the time without thinking about it. Right. And you see metacurrency is about making them explicit or making them explicit when we need to for some reason. I see metacurrency as about enabling us to make a quantum leap in our collective self-intelligence on how we organize on the planet. And currencies and language are the primary tools that we use to organize. And mostly people are blind to currencies. They only see money. So we have like almost everybody blind to one of the major things that we actually use to organize ourselves on scale. And well, but we're <laughs> blind to it because it's hidden from us. When I buy my iPhone, they're not putting on the back of it how many slaves were involved in mining and manufacturing it. They exactly. Don't want you to know. No, but that's that's what you're pointing to is exactly right. It's designed into our current one dimensional monetary currency to hide all of that. Right. Like when all you have is one right. dimension of information, then it hides all of that information. You can't get right. The other. And the one dimension of information is, in most cases, how cheap can I get that feature exactly. or get that quality? Exactly. So you lower my cell phone price down from five ninety nine to four ninety nine, and you've raised two other currencies that I can't see, which is toxic waste spilling from your friggin' efficient factory and the children that are sent into mines to get the molybdenum. Exactly. So it's a mono a monoculture currency ends up promoting these neoliberal values that we've got now, where everything's just happening uh, uh, cheaper or to make more money for some capitalist. Right. So then what do we do? How do we fight to get other currencies? (laughs) I mean, I remember underwriters, UL, that was the only first thing I remember was UL... Remember the yeah. underwriters labs? UL labs, yeah, underwriter labs. Yep. Extension cords, like the better ones, where my dad only bought those ones because the other ones he said would burn the house down. That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so then that's, you get energy saver on your fridge. That's right. All of those things are ways that we are try- signals that we're trying to create for each other to do better coordination, right? Energy Star certified right. and. You know, that type right. of thing. Or you go to Whole Foods, you know, God bless Jeff Bezos. But you go to Whole Foods and you look on the chicken and they gives it a number. It's not just organic or not. It's all organic. But it's like these chickens were just raised normal. These ones had hotel rooms. These ones <laughs> had free use of the cell phone. You know what I mean? And they have a number. So it's like if you get five, it's like these chickens were just loved you know from the moment they were born till the moment they were painlessly executed uh, you know so you can feel the best about that but it's a currency you're buying number one chicken number two number three number four number five and of course the higher the number of of life luxury for the chicken the uh more the the chicken breast costs you right and i think that um in some ways i understand why there's a temptation to try to turn that back into a flat scale but generally that's a mistake to try to take multi-dimensional value and crush it all back down to one dimension actually loses right. the the granularity that people are trying to have when they're making value-based values-based decisions. So then you just throwing numbers on all the different things isn't the way to do it. No. So I don't know if you you you've seen my living systems model of wealth Graphic. Yeah. Yeah. Tell people where to see it. You can find it. Actually, you can find it on the homepage of my personal website, artbrock.com. If you take a look at that, you can see there's these different layers or dimensions that all living systems have. 
from parts and products, which is where our economy tends to do well, to properties of systems, to performance of systems, relationships between systems, the evolutionary capacities of systems, and different types of currencies are in play at all these different layers. And when you try to crush everything down to parts and products and tradable wealth, you actually break the integrity at other levels, right? Like we can trade pounds of beef or something like that, but when you relate to cows as pounds of beef, you're not necessarily very good at cow management, at cattle management, because not every pound of beef is the same. This one that's in a living cow breaks the cow when you take it, you know? So there's like... (laughs) We, we have this tendency. Well, that's the same as relating to, uh, you know, as, as men, you know, relating to women as booty call, yes. you know, which many do. It's like, no, there's actually, you know, they think the, the woman is the part around <laughs> the part that they want, <laughs> you know, and it's, wait a minute, you know, or when you look at, you know, the soil as dirt rather than as this living network right. of things we don't even understand. It's exactly. Like, well, why aren't your trees growing? It's because they're not connected by the mycelium's under the, under the ground. Right. So let's pour some more chemical fertilizer on it. Right. To get the features that we understand how to measure, right, which we've... is the size of the tomato. Yeah. But they, they've tried to... They've tried again to oversimplify even that equation to it like it's just about nitrogen content of the soil or whatever, right? Like, right, which certainly has right. A certain they keep effect, doing that, right? But, so unless you're an indigenous person or a permaculture person who accepts that our reality is way more complex than however many vectors we can use to describe it, um, you're 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 screwed. So then the question is: So why do anything except accepting the fact that we can't understand this and just, you know, be more psychic and open and compassionate and understanding and, and passive. Because you're speaking about things on an individual level. When you're talking about being this way, you're talking about being that way as an individual. And the problems that we have are not problems of our individual selves. They're problems of we have created social organisms called corporations, institutions, governments that are basically eating the planet. We have encoded certain living patterns into those organisms such that they operate like cancers. They use their resources to acquire new resources at the expense of their host. And we, and we justify that. We talk about, well, that's the, the, you know, the job is to maximize shareholder value. You know, no, that's a cancer. (laughs) We have to be able to make new (laughs) patterns of coordinating on scale because we're currently eating the planet and we're starting to see the consequences of that. And currencies are the tool that we use to do this. And we don't, we don't recognize how having a currency that's artificially correlated value to scarcity and is designed for basically exponential debt (laughs) <laughs> to be able to have exponential growth right. of the currency, you know, to to enslave a, the majority of people to a minority of the people through this pattern, you know, we don't realize, even if, without going into major conspiracy theory type of stuff, the slight imbalance that was set up, when you run that iterative, iteratively for 500 years, becomes extreme imbalance. And it's, you know... <laughs> doing major damage at this point, you know, psychological, emotional, 
and ecological damage at this point. So then what are the high the, the, the high leverage points for kind of flipping the, the script on this? Well, I can tell you it's not to make a currency that uses proof of work to burn tons of electricity to on wasted <laughs> computation that gets thrown out and right like I mean that's that currently this whole Bitcoin crypto world is um, has sort of captured everybody everybody's imagination because it's like we've got a new set of unregulated gambling tokens and we can do all the old gambling economy stuff in a new token and it's the wild west you know it's like a, there's that kind of energy to it but th- the thing is that this the seed of it is is actually something good like the the seed of it is how can we take this um, and take it out of uh, centralized control by a few and build an architecture that is more fundamentally decentralized that we can hold together. But I think most people are missing the the key thing there is like we've had a breakthrough in in being able to manage data integrity separate from data security. You know, it, it used to be like... right. You, you want to change the balance of your bank account. It would be very convenient for you to be able to just, you know, log in and say, yeah, now I've got a million more dollars in my bank account. Um, but the bank prevents this through security, right? They lock it up behind fortress walls and, <laughs> you know, make it very hard right. to get into. Very few people have access to their database in those kinds of ways. But when you take a blockchain... right. We've done it through increasing, really increasing the volume of, of protocols rather than decreasing access. Right. So that we can actually, so what blockchain is doing is making it possible for something to be held by many people, but not for no one part of that group to unilaterally change something in the data that, you know, use the cryptography of hashes and signatures and, and trees, hash trees and Merkle trees to make sure that the data integrity is preserved no matter who's holding it. Right. But even something like Ethereum compared to Bitcoin is still absolutely energy intensive, right? Absolutely. I mean, they're all claiming that, oh, no, we don't use that as much energy, but they all do. Electricity is basically the limit on this, right? Well, yes, but <laughs> there's there's a different problem. There's a whole architectural problem with blockchain that most people don't see. And, and most people think I'm crazy when I talk about it this way. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we've built an alternative called Holochain, which basically doesn't have these problems. And, and what the two problems are, what the two sort of fallacies are, if I can geek out for a moment, yeah. is that blockchain is built on the fallacy that data has independent existence and that it is possible to create some kind of universal time sequence, that universal time exists. Mm-hmm. You know, it, we're sitting here on a call right now, you in New York, me in San Francisco, and we could say, let's clap at exactly the same time. One, two, three, clap, you know, yeah. and did we clap at the same time? Of course not, because we've got latency. There's, it did not happen. And even if we were in the same room, it There's, would be hard enough. But uh <laughs> exactly. But there's certainly no universal time sequence of events, right? Like we, the, the general theory of relativity was published a hundred years ago. People have been getting, oh, wait, 
the sequence of things matters from where I'm sitting, right? Mm -hmm. But when we try to, when we spend all of this energy on what blockchain calls consensus, which is, I would I would argue is not any useful use of the word consensus in the way that we think about it in the real world, in the regular world, like outside of cryptography. We're spending all this energy trying to come up with one universal independent set of data on a global ledger in, a, in one universal time sequence. And that's just not the way physics works. It's not the way the world works. And if you start with a different set of assumptions that's agent-centric instead of token-centric, then you don't have any of these computational problems of, of consensus that you have to use proof of work or proof of stake or proof of value or proof of cooperation. Is there a, is there a blockchain that sits somewhere then or is it all in the, in the moment? With Holochain, every agent has their own signed chain, which becomes their immutable record. And then they share non-private entries they, to a distributed hash table. And that becomes an asynchronous, eventually consistent space for being able to share the data for coordinating so that you can run a Twitter without the company in the middle or Facebook without the company in the middle or you know, that kind of thing. You, this is the, a platform for platform cooperatives, for example. It's designed to be fully peer-to-peer -peer and hold something together collectively. Um, so you're, that, you're talking about, you're, you're, you're almost blockchaining the blockchain here. So you're, you're, again, going meta on this, right? So you're saying that there, you're yes. going to make... Rather than each person holding the whole public ledger, you're saying each person holds their part of the ledger and you've programmed it so you can't just falsify your part of it because it, then it won't fit back into the whole big thing that we're holding together. Right. So each person holds their part because they are accountable for their sequence of changes and events. Right. And you know for sure what order things happened from your vantage point only. Right. So we have we have sequence or time from each vantage point and then you share things to the DHT, but it's a, it's a different DHT than most It's a validating DHT. So if, so, so, all right, <laughs> so, so let it, me, let me take yeah, this from, a, from another side then that may help a whole different population of listeners kind of grok what we're talking about. Cool. So science, as I was taught it was this sort of Cartesian thing. Mm -hmm. where I saw the whole universe as an infinitely expanding grid. There's infinite space, and that's the way it works. So, And time is the same way. It goes infinitely back and infinitely forward. And guys like Einstein and Bohr and Quantum and then Julian Barber, who's a time physicist, they sort of realize that, wait a minute, we're not living in this infinite expense. There is no Cartesian grid. There is no beginning and end. Everything is relative. That that we're in, it's not to say the universe is limited, but in some sense it is. It's this thing where everything really exists in relationship to everything else. Exactly. There's no landscape. There's no field. There's no graph paper underlying all this. And if that's the case, then you don't want to model our currency reality, our relationships against a metrical backdrop that doesn't exist, which is kind of the blockchain, the right. Bible, the thing. 
Instead, if all we have is our relationships with each other, then let's make currency this weird interrelational um, relativity thing. It's like Einsteinian currency instead of instead of Euclidean currency. It's all relative. That's right. Currency that can embody the relationships, commitments, and agreements that we actually want to operate by in a particular context. Right. And can we include... All right, this is getting... I don't mean to be weird on you. Can we include nature in that somehow? Can Do you know what I mean? Can, can nature have a voice, uh, an active role, other than that which, you know, individuals decide to include? Because we're not the only ones here, I um, guess is what I'm saying. Right. Well, um, first of all, I would suggest that nature has a voice in the very design of this system, that it is the way nature organizes systems. It operates the way nature organizes systems. So the cell in, the cells in our body coordinate on large scale but not by posting to some global ledger that they all are trying to keep up to date about the state of every cell. That would be right? funny. It's like every person has one of the, remember the old days at hospitals when they had that little uh, clip, <laughs> clipboard on the end of everybody's hospital bed? It's like, oh, That's right. well, all we got to do is find, you know, it's like in the back of your skull somewhere is the, the record that your body's keeping to coordinate. Oh, no, look, uh, <laughs> the kidney just posted this. All right, we'll get her some right. more resources yeah exactly but instead what happens is every cell starts with the same set of agreements with the same instructions called dna Mm. and then every cell embodies its own state right so that's what we're saying you can think of every node in a holochain as a cell in an organism it embodies its own state in its local chain Mm. and it shares some signals and information out to the shared space where it's validated by other nodes that are basically randomly selected because of the way cryptographic hash algorithms work. Um, And the system has an immune system that way. If these other nodes discover you are breaking the rules in how you're posting information and how you're doing transactions, you're trying to publish tweets on a distributed Twitter and claim that they're my tweets and not your tweets or whatever, you know, you're trying to make Joe, Joe, follow Bob, but only Joe can choose to follow Bob. You can't choose that for him. And you're, you're trying to make all these illegal moves. Then the nodes mark you as a corrupted node, your peers that are, they gather this data. They, this data is all signed by you as proof of your corruption, cryptographically signed. Then you get blacklisted from the network. It's right, essentially which an is immune the, system for the network. So you're in a sense, I mean, we're using immunity as your, as your metaphor, you're, you're rich. You are retrieving the, you are retrieving the disciplinary function of the commons. That if you That's know, right. so someone brings their cows, you know, to the commons, and everybody's allowed three cows for three weeks, and some guy brings five cows for six weeks, and people go, "Yo, you're not allowed to use this this uh, field anymore because you've broken our agreements." That's right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the whole. The whole frame of the tragedy of the commons comes from an artificial thing of saying something's either privately owned or it's completely public. But that's not really the way commons work. Commons work by by actually setting common ground, common agreements, shared context. And so Holochain 
starts every ch- every chain, every node on the network that has their own source chain, the very first genesis entry of their chain is the DNA. What that means is it's the hash of the code that runs their agreements. And if you have a different hash, if you have different DNA, then you're not part of this organism. You're you're participating in a Twitter sphere with different rules than our Twitter, for example, right? And you can go play with another group by those rules if you want, but in this space, we play by these rules. And so it, it creates a kind of mutual sovereignty between the individual and the group where, so unlike, let me just clarify something, because a lot of people have a, an, a, an assumption when you're familiar with things like Ethereum, Ethereum is one big monolithic blockchain that runs all the smart contracts, all the programs like run on one chain. Holochain, each different application has its own holochain. Because we're not managing consensus, we don't you can actually have data integrity with two nodes. You don't you don't need tens of thousands of nodes to ma- make sure that you have data integrity because we're not managing consensus. I can only sign my chain and I'm accountable for the changes I make. You can only sign your chain. I can't manufacture something false on your behalf, right? It's just a, it's a complete inversion of the architecture that actually allows things to scale and allows for an ecosystem of different expressions of these things. I mean, we really look at this as currencies are a kind of social DNA that we use to organize ourselves. And this is the kind of carrier that we need for encoding this DNA in a way that allows us to hold it collectively and not have it be in a power hierarchy. And so we're looking at this as creating a whole explosion, like like the, like the advent of DNA created the Cambrian explosion of, of different uh, types of organisms, a whole explosion of new social organisms, new ways that we can organize and optimize and coordinate with each other that are not just powered by centrally controlled money and power and, and that kind of thing. So then even if people aren't using, you know, Holochain, there it suggests that we can operate a bit differently socially, communally, governmentally and all that. I mean, what what are sort of right. the what are the lessons for us, you know, for people who may not, you know, be jumping into Holochain next week, what are sort of the lessons that you've gotten that can be transferred or applied to the way we, you know, try to uh, run little companies or educate people or form communities? You know, there's so many people are emailing these days who are, are listening to the show saying, I love Team Human and this whole, what I want to do is move somewhere or find people that will you know, start a community that will promote human values. And I mean, for them, what's sort of the takeaway of the work that you've been doing? So, you know, I started a, um, a network of alternative schools. And when my son's school in Manhattan had a bit of a meltdown, I stepped in temporarily as director, if I could restructure it as an agile learning center, which is um, basically taking the the kinds of tools for self-organization that I'd been using in software companies for a lot of years and bringing it to learning environments so that kids can actually design their own education and actually run the school and create intentional cultures and 
whole bunch of different stuff like that. And I want to say that uh, for me, one of the takeaways about this whole experience of, of creating these schools that have, that are spreading really pretty rapidly. Now we, we have, I actually have no, I don't know the actual number somewhere around 18 or 20 of them now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, first of all, I want to say that um, it's great working with kids in this domain. I, I kind of almost want to say experimenting on kids in the cultural sense um, because they're so honest you can do really rapid prototyping because adults, they'll fake it. But an eight-year-old, man, they'll tell you if something's not working. In fact, they don't, you hardly even need to wait for them to tell you. You can kind of tell within five minutes <laughs> if, you're, if your processes aren't working for them to be able to participate. And so it lets you refine really quickly w- ways of self-organizing groups and communities and, and culture. And so anyway, the reason I'm saying all that is that um, I feel like we've been doing a lot of great play in that space for how groups can self-organize. We have little simple tools with sticky notes and boards and things that actually help you shift patterns in social interactions, create intentional culture, manage yourself better. Um, and for me, that's that's just been a, a really great playing field and there's a free starter kit at agilelearningcenters.org that you can download if you want to look at those things oh Um, that's cool i mean and i guess anybody can do that and then kind of translate it into their own set of you know cultural and educational values yeah and we actually have families that take these tools home and use them at at in their household at home because the kids have learned to use them at school and it helps them, you know, figure out how do we, how are we actually doing things at home? Because it doesn't always work out so well when the parents just play the authoritarian card, you know, <laughs> um, that doesn't always engage the kids in the best ways. So when you can engage everyone in a process together of mutual co-creation. Right. And ideally you if a, you start out, pattern. if you start out doing that in someone's youth, then, uh, it would, in theory, they'll be uh, behaving almost naturally like that, or they'll, or by default, when they go into, uh, you know, civil service or commerce or whatever it is they end up doing. Right. That's right. I mean, basically. I mean, it only makes sense. Yeah, it only makes sense that our things are modeled the way they are because we used to live with, you know, kings and presidents and bosses and foremen. Uh, it made sense. Right. I mean, our educational system was basically engineered to produce workers for factories that would, you know, go where they're told, do what they're supposed to do in the right sequence, you know, that kind of thing. And that's not the world that these kids today are growing up into. And if they don't have the capacity to adapt to changing needs, identify something that that they need to respond to, be able to act on it, you know, that kind of thing, these kids are not prepared. You know, having a high school or college degree isn't what makes you prepared. It's actually having the skills to navigate the world that way. And that's not what current mainstream schools really teach. Right. There's still, uh, and then when they want advice, they go to the corporations of today to find out, well, how do we better train our students for the jobs of today? You know, <laughs> which is pretty useless because by the time they graduate, those jobs are gone anyway. Right. In light of all this, then what's kind of the current value proposition of all of this 
uh, all of this internet stuff and all of these uh, uh, platforms and, and apps that we're using? Well, I think one of the things that the internet has made more visible is value doesn't come from corporations. Value comes from people, from community. And if you look at all these big plays in the internet space, whether it's Google indexing your content and counting your links to each other's content for being able to give you better search results, you know, or eBay shipping your junk in your garage, you know, or Wikipedia taking your knowledge and compiling it, or Airbnb or Uber or, you know, all of these things are actually just about activating the wealth that's already in community. But they're held by a central company because all of our information management systems, all of our computer computing architectures were still built on the industrial age success principles of enclose something and charge for access to that. They're all centralized. Right. When you have the capacity to hold computational infrastructure as a completely peer-to-peer thing, which maintains its integrity, you can activate the place, the real sources of value without having to put an extractive or exploitative company in the middle, without having to put a cancer in the middle. Right. But the way that they maintain the dominance of these extractive and enclosed models is by telling you that, well, yeah, sure, you can have a commons and have a real-time prosperous thing, but then what about your retirement? What about your savings? You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's as if uh, one is like, uh, is like a total hard drive style economy, but the other feels to people almost like real-time RAM, and they want to know what happens when I get old. You know, where do I store my wealth? Well, I would ask at this point, what planet is going to be left for you to live on? You know, like you keep you keep running it that other way. <laughs> you, kids today, what, I mean, is is retirement even a sensible conversation at that point? Right. I mean, what I've been arguing is that if you can be genuinely part of a community and contributing your whole life to it, then first off, when you're 70, 80, 90 years old, people are still going to understand that you can create value, even right. if you have to be pushed around in a wheelchair to do it. Right. And second, if you've been creating value for the 50 productive years of your life, then the kids are going to take care of you in the end of your life yes. because you're part of their community. Yeah. And that's part of also what reputation currencies in these kinds of systems um, enable. You know, it... <laughs> Sorry, just to go off on a different rant here. We have this myth that the market is the efficient means for doing distribution, that commercial economies are efficient. Why don't we run our families that way then? Why don't you prorate, you know, the use of the refrigerator for how much energy, you know, is uh, being used for your daughter or, you know, whatever? What? Why don't parents charge you for the meals and then charge you interest on that, that you then have to pay back at a particular rate. And, and the thing is that that actually creates tons of unnecessary friction, overhead, accounting. It reduces relationship and trust. It it isolates and disconnects. You know, there's, there's all kinds of costs to this thing that we're calling efficient. 
Gift economies are many orders of magnitude more efficient, but they don't scale because they run on the social contract of being able to hold each other to account, just like the commons had been had operated, right? Right. Currencies that are reputation currencies, that are indicators of the value that you've provided over a long-term trajectory, it basically allows you to filter for for sharing with other sharers. You know, it's like you can you can make people feel safe in a gift economy if they can see if you can allay just a couple of fears. Like I don't want to have to carry freeloaders against my will, like without my choosing. You know, and I don't want to be conned. You know, <laughs> and if you can kind right. of set up the parameters where you have clear enough identity and reputation and you can see somebody's participation and the ways that they contribute. They may not be the ways that you contribute, but you might be able to share some of what you have because you appreciate that they're sharing what they have. And that when you, when you get that kind of mutuality that can operate on scale, you, you have the, it's not just an instantaneous flash Ram kind of thing. It has, it has longevity to it as well. No, it's it's team human. <laughs> exactly. Know? It really is. Exactly. Thank you so much for uh for joining Team Human. Your your work's been, you know, really important for me. I know we've only really touched on one uh really just one small uh piece of or a slice of what you're doing, but I think it it's uh it implies a lot of a lot of other stuff. Your work is very fractal. As I see it, yeah. if someone really comes to understand one teeny piece of it, all of a sudden it's like, oh, you've just been applying this core key insight to everything else, uh, everything else out there. Right. Um, which is, that's a beautiful, that's what humans do. Cool. So thank you for that. Thank you for being on. Thank you for your work and for being so open and and free with it. You're not one of those IP, No. you know, these people who. <laughs> think of their work as IP and then keep it scarce. Right. You're just like pumping it out there, uh, which is beautiful. Thank you. And thanks for all of the amazing storytelling activation of these things in the world. Cause yeah, I mean, I I'm addicted to doing the work, but I'm not, and I, I do share it freely, but I don't always get it out there. And I really appreciate the, the people that do the sense making and the connecting and the storytelling that reach other people who need to know. Oh, well, thanks. That means a lot. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Hey, this is Stephen. Thanks for joining us for another week of Team Human. Today's show was made possible by all of the support via Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash teamhuman to become a subscriber. Subscription rewards include membership on the Team Human Slack channel where we discuss topics on the show, guest suggestions, and more. We also have a membership card designed by our friends at Zago we'll be mailing out soon. Signed books, downloads, and member exclusives. Again, that's at patreon.com slash teamhuman. Thanks to Mike Watt, Are You Serious?, Josh Shitrin and the Team Human Band, and Fugazi for sharing the music you heard on today's show. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff, Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.